0: Support for this program is provided by Chevron, the human energy company. This is Politico Energy. I'm Josh Siegel. Today we have a special episode for you, an extended interview with Pedro Pizarro, the president and chief executive officer of Edison International, which is the parent company of Southern California Edison. That's one of the biggest public utility companies in the U.S., bringing power to 15 million people in California. Pizarro is also vice chair of the Edison Electric Institute, the utility industry's largest trade group. Pizarro and I chat about major federal policy issues impacting the grid, including EPA's recent moves to regulate the power and transportation sectors, along with the permitting reform push in Congress and inflation reduction Act implementation challenges. It's Tuesday, May 30th. Pedro, let's start with some recent news at the federal level. Some utility groups have said EPA's recent proposal to regulate power plant emissions could worsen strains on the grid as it pushes fossil fuel plants into retirement before cleaner alternatives are ready. Do you share those concerns and what do you anticipate this rule if finalized meaning for your natural gas burning plants in particular?
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Josh. And I'll answer this coming from an EEI perspective, a vice-chair of the Edison Electric Institute. I think the headline is that we really appreciate the constructive engagement that we've been able to have with EPA and with the administration. If you go back to where this all started, I think the president initially had a target of having the power sector be at full zero emissions by 2035. When you take a look at the proposed rule, it's different from that, right? And it acknowledges that there are different plans, a different stage in life, there's are different compliance mechanisms, you know, depending on the expected retirement date for those plants. And so, you know, we view it as a constructive first step. Devil's in the details, right? And it's a proposed rule. So there'll be a lot of engagement moving forward from here. I think, you know, a couple of areas of concern that I know we will want to watch for are that the rule, I think, appropriately looks at technologies like carbon capture and clean hydrogen as important tools for the future. At the same time, it's deeming them fully ready now and therefore the best available compliance technology. Well, the reality is those tools still need a fair amount of maturing. The economics of the rule used assume the IRA incentives you know, built in, but there's a lot of details being worked out on those yet. So that's space where the industry will continue to engage constructively with EPA to make sure that a final rule is one that can support reliability and affordability while getting us to a cleaner platform.
0: So, I mean, have you thought about though how it might force you to make decisions around your natural gas fleet, which I know you still do—you know—have a lot of natural gas.
1: So, so we're not, we actually don't, Josh—not owned anyway. Our Southern California Edison utility only produces about fifteen percent of the electrons that it distributes. So, most of our electrons are supplied through procurement from third parties. Now, that said, we still rely significantly on natural gas plants, right, run by others. Given that a lot of the California fleet is fairly efficient, I don't think we're seeing a big impact in the near term. As we look at the California plan to achieve net zero by 2045, you know, we do see that plan using a lot of renewables and storage. And we've put out white papers like our Pathway 2045 analysis on that. We still see, though, a role for natural gas, right? In in our analysis, about 6% of our electrons across California will still come from natural gas in a net zero world with those emissions offset by carbon capture. So a focus for us in California, and I think similarly across other states, will be making sure that the rules provide a pathway to compliance that's aligned with the availability of the technology and the underlying economics, right? In our analysis, we saw carbon capture being a big part of the equation. That carbon capture may or may not be cited right at the location of a plant. So having the flexibility in the rules will be important.
0: Got it. And on another recent EPA proposal from last month to cut cars and light trucks, greenhouse gas pollution in half by 2032, which of course is meant to accelerate automakers' transition to electric vehicles, do you think utilities can meet the expected increase in electricity demand from that push? And what are some potential obstacles in meeting these standards should they be finalized?
1: First answer is yes. I think the utility industry will be ready to do that. And we're working hard right now. The good news is that while the fleet of electric vehicles is increasing quickly, I mean, we saw, I think, around 20% of new vehicle sales in California have an electric plug last year. I think the number was 7% nationally. It's still happening over a a longer period of time. It gives us time to plan and to execute on those plans. We're also collaborating as an industry on things like the National Electric Highway Coalition to help deploy more fast chargers along interstate highways. Challenges, though, to, to the second part of your question, a couple. First, we need to make sure that there are a large number of vehicle models available that consumers will want. I think that's happening. We're seeing more and more models come to market, and importantly, more models in the more affordable you know, price range. We're also seeing the impact of the incentives in the IRA, not only for new vehicles, but also for used vehicle tax credits, which is something that our company advocated for strongly based on a, a $4,000 used TV incentive that we have in, in California. And then I think the other obstacle I'd point to is just the hard work of getting the permitting and siting for not only the chargers themselves, but you know, the upgrades that we'll need across our, our collective systems nationally to deploy that infrastructure. It's workable, it's doable, but it's work we have ahead of us.
0: Yeah, you hit on another big issue of the day for us, which of course is permitting. You've said before that bottlenecks to building transmission represent one of the biggest obstacles to meeting both California and U.S. climate and emissions reductions goals. So what would you like to see Congress do in this area? You know, what would be your biggest priority fix?
1: There's probably several we need, but the the overall umbrella is we do need permitting and citing reform and, and we need that at the federal level, but we also need action at state and even local levels. When you think about a transmission project today, might take 10 to 11 years to get it completed. About a couple of years of that is actual construction time. The rest of it is regulatory process and then importantly permitting and siting. And so as we look at what might happen specifically at the federal level, at least a couple broad categories, one would be NEPA reform, right? And then the other would be support for, for specifically transmission planning process. Lots of devils in the details, but on the NEPA side, Steps to help reduce litigation, to shorten page reports, to help the staff that's actually processing these things on the federal government side, streamlining submission and accountability by state and federal and inter-agencies, prioritizing projects that are built on existing rights of way, and maybe you know only consider alternatives to those projects that demonstrate substantial benefits. And then on the transmission planning side, I think prioritizing the projects that help resilience of the grid and then items like defense facilities in the national interest, helping streamline those. So a number of other steps that we could point to, but they're concrete things we can do to help this problem.
0: Interesting, and you were a big proponent, of course, of the clean energy subsidies passed by Democrats as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. You lobbied heavily for those incentives. So how has the climate law, now that it's gone through, how has it shifted your clean energy transition plans, if at all, and would you say it's delivering on its promise?
1: in california we had the benefit that the state's been very progressive on this right and so i'm not sure that it changes the trajectory what it does change though importantly is the ultimate cost to consumers right and it's interesting with the clean energy transition if you look at our pathway 2045 analysis of course there's an upfront cost right we need to access more renewables and storage we need to bolster our lines you know strengthen them and modernize them So there's an upfront cost to that that will put an upward pressure on electric rates. And we see electrification being a big part of the clean energy transition. So our consumers will use more electricity and therefore their bills will be higher. But one of the important conclusions from the analysis was that because electric technologies are more efficient than say the alternative for a car between a electric motor versus burning gasoline in an internal combustion engine, that efficiency pickup drives a one-third reduction in the total cost we expect for our consumers in 2045 across their entire energy spend. They spend more electricity, but their total energy spend across electricity, natural gas, and gasoline will be one-third lower. And so what the IRA incentives do is to lower that upfront cost of the transition. Those benefits, they really don't accrue to our shareholders. By and large, they go through our bills, or uh, through our rate structures, down to the customer bottom line. And so it's just going to help lighten the burden for customers in the transition.
0: Right, and just one more for you on maybe the hottest energy topic in California right now is whether the full West should become an RTO. So what do you think about the effort to create a regional market in the West? And is there a best model for doing that? Yeah,
1: it's really important. Ultimately, larger markets bring more benefits to more customers. And so we are supportive, subject to getting all the devils in the details right. Today, we, know we are part of the California Independent System Operator. We think that could be an excellent platform. It will need reform though, in terms of its governance to make sure that it's governed not just by California entities, but if it becomes a broader market, then it needs to have governance that is shared across all those participants. And I've been having great conversations with a number of my peers across the West talking about what kind of frameworks would be viable for that. You know, But ultimately, We've seen already significant benefits accrue to customers from the early baby steps of we have an energy imbalance market here in California that's getting now extended into a day ahead market that will be multi-state. We're seeing great benefits already from that. And if we can have a fully integrated RTL, again, making sure we got all the details right, but if we can do that, then that will create great benefits for customers sharing resources across the West, both in terms of the clean energy transition, but also in terms of blocking and tackling reliability and resiliency by sharing resources across a larger grid.
0: For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our free newsletter at politico.com power dash switch and subscribe to Politico Pro to read our morning energy newsletter. Some of the music in today's show was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Josh Siegel and we'll return to our usual show tomorrow.